Hello and welcome to the Second Row Podcast. My name is Port Kelly and if you want to get in touch with me, you can on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at the Second Row. That's 2ND, not the word second. And if you want to get in touch through email, you can. I'm at info at the second row.com. So get in touch if there's anything you want to talk about. With me this week is a second row that played for Connacht for 12 years, gained over 150 caps and was loved by everyone in the sports ground. It's Andrew Brown. Hi, Andrew. How are you? How's life treating you as lockdown finishes? Um, it's not too bad. Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to kind of get out and about again and, you know, just travel to outside two kilometers and outside five kilometers and kind of just get in the car and see different people again. But um, do you know what? It wasn't as as, as difficult as it was at times. I, I didn't find it too bad. You know, I was still, I'm, I'm living in the center of town here in Galway and you kind of still had, you know, within your two kilometers, you had, you know, green space, you could go for walks, you could even, you know, go out as far as Salt Hill and stuff like that. And then as things kind of start to open up, especially around town, it was actually nice to go kind of get a coffee again and stuff like that. So um, there was times when it was difficult, all right, but then it was actually times, you know, when the streets were a little bit quieter and that it was it was nice kind of just strolling around town. I'd say it was kind of eerie sometimes because Galway City has just such a energy to it. To see it so closed down is would be weird. It was, you know, and like the what in fairness, there was a few nights now where it wasn't actually that nice about the place. You know, you would be walking around town, and it was like it was it was kind of exactly that. It was a little bit eerie and um, a little bit uncomfortable at times as well because you'd see some unsavory characters. But um, uh, when it kind of started to get a little bit busier, then and a bit of life kind of started to come back into the city, then it kind of started to. You know, then it was nice and, you know, you could go for walks and you'd be kind of seeing the same people out and about for walks kind of around the clad and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it was um, like town can be like that. Best, like like always quite a vibrant place. So when you do, like you said, when you see it so quiet and um, so desolate, I suppose it, it can be very eerie. And were you able to use the time to kind of for yourself to learn anything or upskill anyway? Yeah, well, it was everything kind of finished, like, you know, rugby finished very, very quickly. You know, I mean, when you think about, I think you're going back to what the weekend of just before Paddy's Day when kind of the full lockdown came in and everything was going, you know, fine. And rugby was was flying as well. Like, and, you know, you were busy most weekends and then everything kind of just stopped and you're kind of just left going, oh, geez, what could I do now? Like, so I actually took a bit of, I think it was, uh, I think a lot of people from chatting to them took, who was involved with Weegians and, and stuff like that, took a bit of time away because it can be even quite intense. And like you saw, like with lads in, within chatting to the Connick lads as well. I mean, they started off, didn't they like kind of, you know, keeping in touch every single week because they didn't know when the season was going to come back around. And then they eventually realized like that this could be overkill a little bit and we're probably feeding too much information to lads so it was actually nice to kind of take a break away from rugby um i still had college going on at that time so it was nice in that way that i could actually focus my attention on that because you know coming towards the end of the year you have a lot of assignments due in so i actually had a lot of time to sit down and and put some proper effort into them instead of rushing them which was nice and then since then it's just been kind of you know getting back into back into looking at rugby stuff again and trying to upskill i mean there's been countless webinars and seminars from coaches and um, again nearly too much because you were kind of trying to filter out the ones that you should be doing and then other ones that you shouldn't but they, some of them have been fantastic so uh, trying to look at that and then just try and keep it on top of the college stuff for when you go back in next year that you're not you haven't forgotten all the information too quickly people have been very good with their time in that sense with the webinars and helping coaches and helping young coaches that want to learn in this time oh, oh like absolutely and you know being involved in the kind of the the connect um you know like coaching in connect with Galwegians, but also kind of being involved and in doing a bit with i'm i'm coaching with the the connect under 18s and what was the connect 17s this year was going into the connect 18s but of course that summer program has been has been put on hold for a while as well so you do get access to a lot of that and they're always very proactive in kind of keeping their coaches up to date with what was going on so um you know just for example we've had webinars with andy friend jimmy duffy pete wilkins nige carolyn uh we had a great one with Corey brown who's um, uh, a former connacht um academy coach as well last weekend and 
I think we have one with Tony Brown lined up. So, you know, they've, they've been really proactive in, in feeding you that information as well. And they're all really open, which was, you know, which is what you're seeing with coaching now is everyone's very willing to share their ideas and, and upskill everyone, you know, so that, that has been great. And there'd be no shortage of that. I'd say when you first started playing rugby in the Bishon with Galwegians, did you ever think you'd be a 150 cap professional rugby player with who's now coaching Galwegians? No, not hope. <laughs> I mean, like I, when I first went up to Galwegians, I think I was uh, like, I was really young because obviously Damien was involved there, you know, so it was a natural progression, but I would, like, would have been under 10s and, but I never really liked it. Um, never got into rugby at that time. And, to be honest, I was a bit of a lazy kid as well. You know, I, I was, I much preferred sitting in my room playing my PlayStation, which is when I look back at it now, like I haven't played the PlayStation in about 20 years since then. So, um, you know, go, and then when I eventually, I never played throughout the dish, which is the funny thing as well, which is people always kind of are, are surprised to hear that as well. Um, and I only went back playing in sixth year. Um, and cause I just said that some of the lads were asked, asked me down, like, and obviously, yeah, I had the pressure of, of Damien playing. The whole time but yeah i never really followed it but until that sixth year and really enjoyed it and then i repeated my leaving cert in the bish um and then joined back with uh, galwegians again for under 20s and again just continue to enjoy it continue to um uh, progress as well which was the big thing you know so um and then eventually into the connect academy but even at that early stage you know when you when you're only starting back rugby at like 16 17 you're you know thinking professionally because you think so lads who have been playing consistently for years are so far ahead of you I didn't have that idea of, a, of playing professionally at all but then as as that progression happened I was like geez yeah maybe maybe I could make a living off this or even or maybe try and get into the academy and it was all these little goals all the time maybe try and get into the academy maybe try and get into the senior team and and yeah that's the path that that's how it actually worked out and it was it was great that's some progression from kind of just getting back into rugby at, in six year to being in the under twenties for Ireland and helping win a Grand Slam. Yeah, I mean that was and that was yeah it was very quick when I when I was thinking back on it I always kind of had these little goals. I mean I went back playing yeah when I was I think six year in the base and um, do you know what what the good thing was is I did have the base of skills like uh, my my passing was pretty good. I knew the game from obviously haven't played it when I was younger but always kind of messing about with a rugby ball with demo and you know, there was always a rugby ball in the house so um it's not like i was coming in completely green into it and having to learn the basics of passing and tackling and breakdown and stuff like that um so that's probably why that progression when i eventually went back playing was so quick and yeah then i remember just going for um a conic youth trial and actually jimmy duffy was the coach for conic youths and he was even surprised to see me there because i grew up across the road from jimmy and he didn't even know I played rugby, you know. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and then kind of, yeah, got that conic youths, and um, they, I didn't get an Ireland youth trial, which like I was nowhere near it anyway. I, was, I wasn't, I was, I was far from um, Ireland youth material at that stage. And then the next year, I went on conic nineteens, yeah, made the Irish nineteens, and then kind of uh, captain the conic twenties, and then yeah, went on to the Irish twenties with Eric and Dan. Uh, and that was that was a class year. Like I mean, winning the Grand Slam. That was as a, as a great group of players as well. A lot of, like lads there that went on to, or still playing like Keith Earls and Keen Healy that have won a lot of caps for their Ireland seniors. Yeah, that year in two thousand seven, it must be a great memory to look back on. Do you remember the journey off that Six Nations? I do. Yeah, I remember it quite well. I remember we were training. We were training really well, and it was uh, one of the funniest things about it was Luke Fitzgerald was he was the big shot back then. I mean, he was a fantastic player, but he was actually training with um, Ireland seniors at the time, and uh, we had Felix in a fullback, and Felix played all our warm up games, and we were really you know, we played. I think Leinster A in warm up games. I think we played. I'm not sure who else we played, but we we were going really well, you know, but. Uh, we still didn't think we'd win the Grand Slam, but um, Luke Fitzgerald came in just before, the week before. I think we were supposed to play Wales in the opening game, and Felix was kind of you were kind of like, "Oh, Felix is going to get the the shove here." But whatever transpired, Luke was then during that week was called up to the senior camp. Felix came in. Felix scored two tries against Wales when we were we were well behind. I mean, they were dominating us in that first half, or probably for sixty minutes of it, and then Felix came in, scored two unbelievable tries. You know, so. Um, and then from there, I think he was he was probably player of the tournament. He was he was fantastic. Um, but 
two biggest games were probably in Athlone when we played France and England and they were, you know, February nights, freezing cold, grim enough nights, but grinding out the wins then against what were pretty big teams because France were still an under-21 side at that time and so were Italy. So we had to play France and Italy under-21s and at a year at that age actually makes a pretty big difference, you know. So, yeah, and then we went down, we beat Scotland quite comfortably. I think it was in, I'm not sure, Falkirk or something like that and another freezing night. And then we went over to play at Italy in the back arse of somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where it was in Italy. Um, but it took a long time to get there. And we were actually, we didn't play that well. We, we were down for the first half and then we kind of came back. There, I mean, there was quality players. I mean, you could go at that age, you could give Keith Earls the ball and he could weave in and out of people and just score a try for nothing. And, you know, when you had Ian Keatley at 10, uh, you had Darren Cave, you had all these like serious players that would go out. Sean O'Brien was playing with us, you know, so. Yeah, we eventually, you know, the the quality toll in that match, and yeah, we had the Grand Slam. It was it was it was unbelievable. It's, it's great to actually kind of think back and and look at some of the pictures of it as well. It's mad because you had Eric and Dan as your coaches, mm. and who became your coaches later on. Did they change much as coaches over the years, or was their core belief still the same? Um, no, it was pretty the same. I mean, there were two like starting with Eric. Eric was always very passionate. I mean, he was. You know, especially with Connacht, I mean, it, like Connacht meant a huge amount to him. And I think you see that in um, the West Awake, isn't it? You know, when we beat yeah. Queens to win that first Heineken Cup match and he, you know, very emotional and, you know, but also very, you know, technically good as well. But um, I always remember the emotion with Eric and, you know, it's great that he's actually in, you know, the head of the academy in Connacht now, like, because um, the place just means so much to him that when he went, you could never see him staying gone for long in Connacht and to have him kind of come back in the, into the academy then at that time um, you were kind of just like yeah that was always kind of going to happen because you know the place means so much to him Dan did I remember Dan I remember being Dan did change a lot um, I remember first being coached by Dan geez it must be I think he probably do you know when you were in one of those camps when you were younger and Dan yeah. come in and he'd do some scrummage stuff scrummage was his speciality and um, and then we had him I think he was coached for our he was definitely coached for our Connacht under-20s. I think it was him and Eric as well who were coaching our under Or was it Nige and Dan? But yeah, and he, but he was, you know, you didn't want to get on the wrong side of Dan. <laughs> he could, <laughs> a couple of times, you know, he'd just lose the plot. And But then, as went into the senior team and Dan became the forwards coach, you'd see him just kind of, he wouldn't be as, you know, he'd just mellow out and continue to mellow out over the years. Um, you know, he'd still have those occasions, like every coach does, every coach, like I'd be, I'd be going nuts at some stages and I'm like, geez, that's totally out of character for me. But it just happens because you're just in the heat of the moment. But um, And then from what I hear from when he went on to Glasgow and then on to Scotland and and now Ulster, apparently he's mellowed out even more again. Like, And he's quite he's quite calm and composed now. You know, so it does, it just shows you do progress, even like the top coaches do progress and, and change throughout their course as well. It was that year in 2007 you got your first Connacht cap. Is that right? Yeah, um, yeah, that's and that's that's a funny one as well. We were actually pre-season in two thousand six. I actually played my first senior game. It was against Narbonne. I remember um, I was training in the academy at the time, and Connacht had an injury crisis. I think at uh, at second row. Um, I'm not sure who. You know, Swifty would have been there at the time. Dave Gannon, Bruce would have been there, um, and but uh, I I had to do a couple of training sessions with them, and. Yeah, I was called over to Narbonne then, um, and that was fantastic. I think I got like 20, 25 minutes off the bench. Uh, I remember Bruce. Bruce was great. Andrew Farley was great back in the day. I remember my very first contribution on the pitch, he just called a line out straight to me. Like So, you know, it's, it's great for a young fella to try and get them into the game like that. Um, and then, like, that was, I mean, when I think back, I think that was like Brett Wilkinson's first game. I think it was Adrian Flavin's first game. Uh, Tom Tierney was there at the time so we all kind of made that first game together so that was that's nice and then I didn't play throughout the year because you know I was only kind of coming in the injury cover but I was training I was brought up yeah. to train for seniors for the rest of the team for the rest of the year and then eventually I think it was must have been in April 2007 maybe um, um, I was I was <laughs> yeah I was selected to play however I was it was the time of crypto spiridium oh, do you no. remember that do you remember yeah. that in, in Galway yeah and I was I, I had it bad I was, I was for about three weeks I was I was shocking and I think I was I stepped on the scales one time and 
like I wasn't the heaviest at that time anyway because I was still kind of developing stuff. I was about 104, 105 kilos. I stepped on the scales, uh, I think the week of the match, and I was under 100 kilos. I was like 99, 90, that's 98, huge. 99. Oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> like I wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't put any young fella out like playing a professional game, playing, doing that. But, you know, when you're that age and, you know, I was kind of hiding it a little bit, but I was dying. Um, and then, yeah, I got, I think I'm possibly about maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes again off the bench. Um, but I struggled. I really, really struggled. I mean, that, that 25 minutes or 20 minutes felt like 80 minutes. I was just, I was hauling myself around the place. So yeah, it wasn't, uh, I didn't do anything. I was just trying not to do, I didn't do anything spectacular. I was trying not to do anything bad. I wasn't trying, I was trying not to mess up, if you know what I mean. So. Um, and then I was actually, I, I eventually had to say something. The next next week again, I think they selected me to go on the bench again. I eventually had to go, oh, no, I can't. Like, I was, I was, I, like, I was gaunt. I was pale as, I was still going to train. They were like, just go home. Yeah, so, yeah, that that's my abiding memory of my debut for Connacht. That's mental. Mm. But when you started, you pretty much were a mainstay under Bradley with double-digit appearances every season. Yeah, and then, yeah, when Brad's came, and I played a lot of six, um, which was great. I loved playing six, but I never, I, I was always a second row growing up, you know, so I didn't have actually much experience with six. But, you know, again, as you develop, you put on a little bit more muscle mass and you're actually in a proper setup with proper, you know, training and, and speed drills and, you know, like of your fitness and stuff like that. So I actually, I actually developed into, you know, a six then, six slash second row. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. So, and I was, yeah, I was getting some good game time and it probably coincided with a few lads getting injured, if I'm honest. And, um, I think Mac, uh, Mike McCarthy had a pretty, I think it was a foot injury or a toe injury one year, which kept him out for pretty much all of after Christmas. So I racked up a lot of game time then. Um, and really enjoying it. And, you know, you know yourself, results probably weren't going our way back then. And we had some pretty, pretty tough days, but just getting that experience on the pitch from, a relatively young age. Um, yeah, it was great. I, I really enjoyed that time. They say nothing beats games and you really got them at a young age. Yeah, and, and that's it because that's what progresses you on. And like, even as a coach now, I'd be all, like, do you know, you could say some fellas, oh, he's too young, he's too young. He's not. Like, if you can actually go out there and, and perform and, do you know, like, and that will accelerate his development and stuff like that. And the more you can put young fellas in that situation where they're experiencing that, the, the quicker they're going to progress. What was life like under Eric Elward 2.0, I'll call him? He'd coached a bit more. It's been a few years since the under-20s. How was Connacht in the Elward years? It was it was tough. So it was mainly because results weren't going away. And I always think back to that, the, the first Heineken Cup season and that Harlequins game when we eventually won. But I think that was on the back of 13 or 14 losses. I can never remember exactly what it was. I mean, that was... That was, and I'd actually, I was injured for that, that whole year as well. I mean, um, I had a lot of Achilles trouble throughout my career and it was just that, that whole season. I don't think I played a, a game because I was just out. And the combination for, for me personally of the injury and the, just the atmosphere around the place because we were losing, um, on a consistent basis, that was very difficult. And, you know, you wouldn't be looking back on those years with fondness. Um, but it also does build a lot of kind of resilience in you, a lot of individual and collective resilience as part of the group as well. That, you know, you've been in far worse situations than, you know, say we're, that we would face in, in years to come, you know. So there was, yeah, I'd say as, as, as much as I hate to say it, there was probably more lows than there were highs. Um, but it definitely kind of, it definitely gave us that appreciation of what, what came after. But yeah, it was yeah, it was it was some tough goals, and and Eric as well. Like you said, it, it it was tough for him, and I think that's probably why he needed to step away when he eventually did, because he was so attached to the place, and for those results to not be going your way and stuff like that, it can it can be really hard, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much those years. You'd know better from seeing him over the years, but he seems revitalized coaching the academy team. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I went in, um, I went in last year where to do a bit within the academy. So it was just kind of like a, a two month stint with them and, you know, work with Massey Lawler and Ambrose Conboy and Cully Tucker and Eric. And yeah, I was very uh, pleasantly surprised with Eric's, you know, he was just, yeah, he, like you said, revitalized and vibrant and, 
um, laughing and joking, which I didn't, you know, we probably didn't see enough of when we were, when he was the head coach of Connacht at that time. And through a combination of things, you know. So um, when I did go back in, I, w- I was loving it. And he seemed to be really enjoying himself again. And um, he's, a f- he's a great man to be in that position to, you know, bring through the next crop because, you know, he probably leaves the coaching to the lads, but these, the, to Mossy and Ambrose and Cully, but these young fellas seeing Eric and probably learning uh, about his commitment to Connacht over the years and just exactly what he did for the province. I think it's very good as well. And it can be inspiring to those young fellas who probably are a generation now that probably wouldn't have seen Eric play, you know. So I think to have Eric in that position, I think can be a real positive for Connacht. Do you think players found it overwhelming being coached by Eric Elward, the international, especially knowing his history and everything he'd done? Um, do you know, I don't think so. I don't because if I go back to the twenties, I just, I, Eric, you know, we would have all known Eric's history and we all would have grown up watching Eric, but the, the Irish twenties, this is now I'm talking about. And yeah. I don't think any of us were overwhelmed by it. And I, and when I go on to Connacht then, I, I don't think anyone was overwhelmed by Eric's kind of stature as well. And he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have played on a stature at all. Like, you know, so, um, I just think at that time, it's very hard to pinpoint like we weren't as good as we should have been, you know, from an individual and collective point of view. Other teams probably were just progressing at a quicker rate. <sighs> you know, if I sit here all night, probably think of other factors. Were we professional enough at the time? There is a question mark around that when you see just the difference now between us. Obviously, when you go through the years, obviously you are going to progress in your professionalism. But I would just wonder relative to other teams back in that time, were we professional? Uh, and I count myself in that as well. You know, I, I yeah. probably wasn't as professional as I should have been. So I'm just, and look, I'm not saying that's the issues. I'm just probably talking out loud and asking the questions myself as to why probably results didn't go our way back then. Connacht as an organisation was getting more professional as the years went as well with the new training ground and new grounds. And when you see that develop, you're kind of almost always catching up with yourselves in a way. Or did it feel like that? Uh, it probably did. I mean, yeah, when you talk about actually when you brought up one there, you, the training grounds. I mean, when I first joined Connacht, it was this small little gym in and the coaches offices are actually there now within the main the branch building there. And it was a tiny gym. I mean, like when you think back at it and how far we were behind in, in terms of that, um, it was crazy that we could ever think that we could compete, especially on the physicality side of things. Um, then when we started to build a new gym, I mean, that was unbelievable when it first came in. And it's still a fantastic facility as well. But you just see how teams are progressing now in terms of their training facilities. And, and you don't want to be left behind because it can have a huge impact on on a, just, you know, the team preparation. And um, I, th- I know in Connacht, they still only have a, a small enough room with, I think, there's five laptops in there. Um, so, you know, and there's probably a couple to take home as well. Do you know, would you think, yeah. you know, it probably should be progressing on further than that now? I know each individual lad does have their laptop as well, and they have Huddle, which is, you know, they can have the games and they can have training put straight to that. You just, you really do have to keep pace because if there's one thing I've noticed as a coach is the game is constantly just evolving and evolving at an incredible rate that there's always something new to be doing. There's some, you know, some new tactic around, you know, lineouts or, or the breakdown or what is this team doing around their defence and stuff like that, that if you're not keeping pace, you'll be left behind really quickly. Yeah, and you had a great coach to learn from then in Pat Lamb when he came in, who I don't think he revolutionised what Connacht were doing, but he definitely brought it on a few steps because Eric did want to play rugby. Oh, yeah. Yeah, de- de- yeah, look, definitely Eric wanted to play. And I just think... Yeah, it's it's hard to point. Like when I'm thinking back on the air, it's very hard to pinpoint. And like I said, it's just maybe we just as a group we weren't professional enough, and we weren't holding ourselves accountable uh, enough as well. And you know, you can you can be talking about the stuff like facilities and stuff like that, and you know what we were doing in our physio department, what we were doing in our strength and conditioning department, and we always have to ask those questions: Was it good enough at that time? Probably, if I'm thinking back now, it wasn't. But look, you know, these things happen, and we're sure. I'm sure we're not the only club in that situation. Death by a thousand cuts type of situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, there was like, and it's, uh, and then when Pat came in, like Pat was, he gave us a vision. I think it was this vision that we didn't have before. 
and it was an ambitious one. I mean, I don't think you probably ask anyone that. <laughs> you know, I don't think we anyone was taught that it was actually realistic. Um, um, but he kept hammering it home, and he obviously he believed in this vision one hundred percent. And then, if you see someone that's this kind of pretty much leading the organization, and they believe in one hundred percent, then you you're you're backing in behind it. You know, like you just do that, you start to believe. Um, and obviously, very big on the team culture side of things, which probably came from New Zealand, but uh, now it just seems like such a mainstay that if the team doesn't talk about their culture and their vision and stuff like that, you're just like, oh, they're what are they doing? Like it's 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 a part of rugby now, whereas maybe back then it just wasn't, or we didn't, but maybe it was, and we didn't know about it in Connacht previous to that, you know. So um, I think that was the biggest thing, and then coming in, and and I mean he. He held us all like he it, we had some pretty tough team reviews. I will say that, you know, so after some games where there was no hiding place and probably sometimes it would be borderline nearly going, oh, look, this is too harsh here. But we all knew that we had to be on our game all, all the time and we had to be unbelievably professional because if we weren't, we were going to be turfed out. And then if we weren't performing in games, then we weren't going to be in the team the next week. So. It was increasing our professionalism and the competition within the side because it was always, it was always like especially in the Pro Twelve or the the winning season. There was always there was a huge amount of competition throughout the squad. That if you weren't performing at your best and you weren't doing all the right things, then you wouldn't be in the squad. It's amazing to think that one person can have that kind of galvanizing effect of just being. This is it, lads. This is the standard that kind of almost that the fans expect you to play at in a way you know that everyone else believes that you can play to and now i'm going to set that as your standard now you now you have to play there mm. yeah it's it is it is fun i think and, and it's probably a bit of a i think you've probably he probably nearly came in on a blank canvas and connect and stuff like that where he was like oh look this is a great opportunity for me to implement the stuff that i want to the stuff that i believe in um because you think back to his time in the blues and i don't think it went swimmingly there you know so he probably was maybe challenged by your players a bit much. Uh, within Connacht, I think we were, um, w- yeah, we were open to this coming in. Why? Because what we had nothing to lose. We had probably, you know, we had been consistently around, what, 8th, ninth, 8th, maybe 7th in the table and stuff like that. But if we really were, or even maybe lower than that, but if we really wanted to progress on, then why wouldn't we as a group of players be really open to what he's, he's talking about and what he's bringing in you know and i think that's um you know he obviously shared that vision with us but we all got in behind and everyone in the organization i mean he had you know the coaches with him as well who were putting in a lot of work um i like like and pat's known for his work like he is he works an incredible amount and looks at a huge amount of rugby and, and stuff like that as well you know so he's always on top of the game and i think that's what he expected from the players as well um, and yeah, I think you're right. That probably did have a galvanizing effect on us a little bit as well. How did you enjoy the Pro 12 final win that day? The the journey, it must have been just surreal as someone who's been in the Kong setup for so long. Yeah, I think. And that was the biggest thing about it. It was just from being there since um, what I counted as 2006, you know, that 2006-7 season when I, you know, played against Narbonne and then trained with the seniors all the way up and and saw some pretty low times and it was nearly throughout the season then and it was probably a negative outlook on my point of view you're nearly waiting for the bubble to burst be like oh like this is going really well do you know when is it gonna when are we when are we gonna do a connect on it and you know like not not get there but like we just kept performing and like like i said there the competition was so high and pressure was so high in training um and training was at a really high standard all year that we just kept progressing on and then the, eventually that day um i always i always speak about like um arriving arriving to the stadium i mean that's my overriding memory of that day um and just the people up on on the rafters and up joe you know, on the the balconies and stuff like that and singing the fields of rafter as we got off the bus and um just having goosebumps and being led in by the band and because i actually when we were driving to train and i were driving to train driving to the match I saw so many people in the pubs that I was thinking, oh, there's going to be no one at the stadium to actually welcome us. But then <laughs> we got so massive surprise. And then called, I remember going in, uh, I think uh, Mull talks about it in one of the books that came out after. It's just myself and Mull just happened to go into the bathroom at the same time. We looked at each other and the two of us had tears in our eyes. 
Um, and you're just like, Jesus, this is, and you really like cemented just the magnitude of the day. Um, and then eventually going out that, you know, cause it was such a big day and we'd never been in that situation before, uh, playing in the final, um, you nearly like there is that doubt in your mind you're like are we going to live up to this occasion here because Leinster are so used to it we're not but then we actually go out and play incredibly well and and show what exactly what we had showed throughout the year um and then just like that final whistle I remember not even the final whistle but just we were on we were still on their line um with a scrum and it was like 10 seconds left or the sign had just gone and we had won it even if they scored, you know, we'd still won it. And I remember lads like hugging each other and stuff like that. And you're, you're there trying to be serious, be like, come on, come on, let's just finish <laughs> off the game. But in your head, you're just doing cartwheels because you've no, you've, you've just won the Pro 12, something that no one, and I mean, no one would ever have thought we would have won, you know. So um, it's just, and then the days after were just incredible. Yeah. Before the match, you know, Joycey, you know, rocks up like 45 minutes before you do to get mm. everything ready. He was telling Cogs fans outside that what time the bus was arriving. Mm. I've no doubt he was. You know, <laughs> and then like a few of us went around going, telling everyone, get up, get up there before the Leinster fans get up there. Just yeah. get up there. Oh, 100%. Get up there. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. like, I've no doubt. Like, I mean, the, our fans, like the Connor fans that, that day were just ridiculous. I mean. Again, that's something, that's one of the override memories. And I remember even the Leinster, I think the Leinster, well, Leinster bus thought it was a bit of an ambush when they got off and it was just all comic fans shouting at them from the rafters and stuff like that. So, um, it's just like, because it was such a, it wasn't like, that's the thing. It wasn't such a, just a big day for us as players and, you know, the people who were involved in the, the kind of rugby setup, but everyone, I mean, the, all the supporters and the fans that have gone through the same tough years, you know, going up to the sports ground in the lashing rain and, Sitting, you know, like going to away games where we've been, you know, we've been on the bad end of some big scorelines. I mean, there's some games that just will live with me forever with just how horrendous they were. And all of those at the final whistle. And those, these were, those were the biggest things. Those games where we lost to Saracens away. We were, you know, ones where I've played where we've lost to Cardiff away by like 50 points, Clenetly away by 50 points. All those games are what came into my head and just be like, like in the past we've just won the pro 12 this is just ridiculous you know yeah mm. how did you control that emotion for the day because that must have been tough you know some players don't use emotion as much but like on that day i'd say it was something that you used and had to control yeah probably well you were just trying not to think about what was coming up and and too much and just the magnitude of it but then you were also just trying to enjoy it because like i said we'd never been there before so um i think you know that that was one thing i was trying to say myself just just enjoy this because i used to get extremely nervous um before every game um you know and sometimes you can just those nerves can just be like oh you're just dreading it all day then just dreading it but this was this was different. It wasn't just any other game. Like this was a final and as, as much as you like to, you know, in your head, you're just like, oh, any other game, approach it the exact same way. It's not. It, it's completely different. You're playing the final for the first time. So I was just trying to sell myself to enjoy it. Um, and there definitely was emotion and emotion is a great thing in rugby. I think you have to play with some sort of emotion that it just, it, I don't know, it just gives you that, I suppose, extra lift. And that's why like the fans were so like well watching the game back on tg car what was this was like the end of may there when we you know it was on again yeah and you could just tell how loud our fans were compared to the leinster fans and uh, you know that definitely gave you that kick when you're on the pitch as well as much as you didn't know it at the time those little battles of them knocking it on or us making a big hit or just Alton's carry over Dave Kearney or something like that you know those lifts you know they're just like you know they're they're just magic they're the things you remember I I, I think it was hilarious that you could still hear at 75 minutes of just the kind of fans singing championes you know <laughs> like we were we knew we had the game won by 70 minutes it was it was mental yeah yeah but it's never you never like the 10 fates you know so you're just probably just like yeah that's I'd be just, I'd be like a bit nervous. That's why I was like 30 seconds left on it. I knew we had a one and I was still like, no, no, come on, concentrate, concentrate. And you're just, <laughs> for some reason, just in your head that you're just tempting faith, even though you haven't won. Uh, it, was, it was just class. One of the kind of seminal pictures of that, the celebrations is you, Mull Lockney and Mull Downey on the back of the open top bus mm. going through Galway. Yeah. When did you come to? 
<laughs> when, uh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> when did the reality hit? Yeah, when did like the uh, world, when did you have to get back to normal life again? <sighs> yeah, it's a good question. It's probably midway through that week. Um, that was a Sunday. Was we got back on the Saturday night? I think we were all we all like into Knock Airport. We were at the stage set Knock Airport, and then we, there was bonfires the whole way down, and we went into the Blue Note in town, and it was all hours till we left there. Next day, the bus was just surreal, like crazy again. Do you know when you you you're going, you're it's kind of similar feeling to what what I had going to the game. You're going into town, and if I remember, it was downstairs. It was myself, Mull, uh, Locks. We were just chatting downstairs, and we had we had the cup in the double decker bus, and we were we were kind of just down our eyes. I was like, how many people? How many people are actually going to be at this here? Um, and then we eventually got there, and I think, in fairness to Pat, he was just, he was the one to be like, "Oh, Yee Tree, Mole, or, or Ali, uh, Finley was down. Tiernan was down the back of the bus. They were like, "Ye go down to the back of the bus, you know, just ye been here the longest. Make sure you kind of enjoy it." And Pat was big on that. In fairness to him, um, so then just going through town, and we started off at the town hall, and there was a few people there, and then it just built and built and. Going through our square was just incredible. And I pictures on my phone. I still look back at the odd time, you know, a few was down the back. And actually, I remember going by, um, what was it, Richardson's in town there, you know, by, by the square. Yeah. Um, and I saw my parents down below, like, and I was just like, wow, I was welling up then, you know, just because you have seen your parents. Yeah, I hadn't seen them since the final. Or I saw my dad in the airport, all right, but I haven't seen my mother. And you're just, you're just so emotional. And then pictures of going down College Road and then the stage and the sports ground. Um, they're the thing they're like it's nice to have pictures of that day and stuff like that but like those, those actually memory of being on the bus was, was just incredible you know so that and that will live with you forever and then after that it was just I don't know next few days were a blur and a good few hangovers and I'd say it must have been about the middle of the week when I was actually like right <laughs> what will I do with myself now is there any stories from those celebrations that you can tell that will get someone into trouble <laughs> oh probably yeah <laughs> yeah, probably loads of them, <laughs> but I won't. I remember, what was it? No, we were actually, Sunday was a nice day because we finished in the sports ground and then we kind of all dispersed and I think a few lads went down to the Pucon and then you had the, you know, I think you had pictures of Bundy in the Pucon and stuff like that and we were, a few of us were walking by and we heard, oh, it looks pretty wild in there. <laughs> so we were like, we'll, we'll continue on down further downtown um, and I don't know how it ended up. I We were like, it was a lovely evening, wasn't the weather really nice around that time? And we were like, right, we'll go for, we'll go for a few drinks down the Spanish Arch. And I just happened to be walking by, and my brother was actually down there with a friend of mine, Dave Nolan, as well. So they were down there. So then a few of us went down. And we were sitting around then, and the tide was high, and it was a really nice evening. And that was a really nice time. And that's what I, I have a picture of it actually in the house of us just kind of sitting around just chatting away and having a few drinks down the Spanish Arch, you know. And that memory is actually really nice to me. And then after that, we went up to, I think it was the Dollar. Jesus, I'd say we were in every pub. I couldn't probably name check every pub around town. Uh, <laughs> next day, we were in, again, weather was really nice. We were in Jury's Beer Garden. There was a load of us around. We were just having the crack. And, and the well wishes and, you know, like everyone kind of coming up and saying, well done. And that was all, that's also really nice. And that was really special as well. Um, you know, so it's, just, and then we were in front door for, for the whole night. And I remember Bundy up and, those flower pots outside like front door and buskers and it was like he had just a crowd in the pound of his hand he was just leading chants and it was all of us were around and <laughs> it was just like it was like just hundreds of people again like and he was, it was just yeah it was gas if you couldn't say the pro 12 win what were your best memories in the conic jersey Ooh, yeah good question um Unfortunately, I, I I unfortunately missed out on a lot of good games over the years as well. I missed out on the one to lose away um, in 2013, I think that game was. Yeah. Um, uh, Beeritz at home was a nice one. I think that was my first. I, and I actually also missed out on Toulouse at home as well around this. Uh, when was that? When we first played Toulouse at home? Was it 2011, 12? Um you know, so they, you know, I miss out some true injuries, some some big games, and that was kind of always preying on me for a while. And then eventually, I, I got I selected to play Biarritz at home was another big game, um, and that was fantastic, and we won. And I think around that was around the Christmas of two thousand twelve, I'd say, possibly. Um, and that that was that was brilliant. And um, what else? Toulouse at home in two thousand sixteen, 
the year after or the season after we won the Pro 12. Um, and I think there's a picture going around the Bundy at the minute going in that jersey that we, yeah, that we, yeah, that we, that we won in. Uh, that was a really special memory. Our knee scored that amazing try in the corner from, from deep in our own half. Um, so that, that was excellent. And I remember like though that was like the crowd running onto the pitch after and, and then just like beating, we've beaten what Munster, Munster in the Interpro, the, the Pro 12 year when we beat, uh, Leinster and Munster at home. And those Interpros were always special. And I used to love the Interpros around Christmas because it was, you know, it'd be usually a, <laughs> a terrible night, but there'd be like all your family and friends would be at the game and they like, you know, everyone would be home for Christmas and, and stuff like that. So I used to love those Interpros around Christmas. When did you decide to retire? Because you still could have gone on and played for a team in England or France if Connacht didn't want to keep you. You're very young for a second road to retire. Yeah, it was probably... Um, so after the Pro 12 year, I had uh, a disrupted season, the 16-17 the season. It was pretty disrupted. Uh, I was going I was going really well. I started, a, I think I had a hamstring injury at the start of the year, but I was going really well throughout pre-season. And it's kind of, you know, it was a year I was kind of starting to develop into into kind of more of a leader than the squad. Um and well, yeah, we I, I was playing. I was having a good run of form up till about the uh, November international break, and I was actually called into the Irish squad for the first time. But the night before, I was supposed to uh, go into camp, which possibly would have been my first uh, cap, my only cap. I don't know if it would have been. It was the um, I we were playing dragons in Rodney Parade, and I uh, broke my leg and did a high ankle sprain at the same time. Uh, um, and that was like five minutes into the match, and I was just like, "Oh God!" Um, um, and that was that. Was, and then I, the next week, that was the it was the Canada game that Tiernan and Finley and Neasy played. That that I'm not sure if I would have been involved in it, but I had you know I'd gotten the the letter as well to say that I would have been in camp. But I looked, and then you know that that was frustrating. Um, I eventually got back from that, uh, and again I went on a good form of playing. Um, had good games against Glasgow for my 150th game. Um, over there, I had a good game against Leinster at home. Uh, good game against Edinburgh away. Uh, and again, I was just and again, I was like possibly pretty close to going on the summer tour. And then, just in training before we played Northampton in that playoff game in training, I I hurt my calf and I, I tried to get back for the game and and didn't quite make it. Um, eventually pulling up in the warm up of that game. Um, and then I didn't get on there and then I was just, but I was still pretty confident kind of going in and I remember even I captained Connacht against Scarlets um, a few weeks before that as well you know even though we, the, the result didn't go our way so I was just like look yes it was disrupted season I only played 13 or 14 games however when I did play I was like look I'm, I'm playing really well here and then went into the summer calf was fine get back into pre-season then my Achilles acts up again and I'd always had a bit of trouble with it. I had I'd two operations on my right one back in 2011-12. This was actually my left one. Um, it got really sore. I played three pre-season friendlies, and then in the first week, we were supposed to play Glasgow. Um, and yeah, it was just like, that kind of just went in one training session. Now, it didn't, you know, tear or anything like that, but it was the same, it was the same um, pain that I had in when I got two ops on from years earlier. Um, so then, yeah, I was out for a while, couldn't get back, you know, the usual, I went, eventually got the operation, um, and yeah, got back then probably in January, like around Christmas, I was starting to feel it again, even after the op, but eventually it was just slow, it was slow coming back. Then I eventually got back in start of February and Osprey's at home and started, uh, selected to start first game back, uh, again, delighted. Um, and but yeah what nine minutes in or something like that I got hit on my left hand side and popped my AC joint <laughs> I remember walking off that night I, I walked off I had my arm in you know they, they used the jersey as the sling yeah and I was just like what the fuck excuse my language I was just like what the fuck like you know just how is this happening you're out for the whole season nine minutes back into your first game and you're going off with a dislocated ac joint so i remember i was for, i was really i was actually really upset at that um and i went into the toilet in the sports ground and i was just i just sat there for ages with you know tears <laughs> um and i was just like i kind of knew then 
because I was struggling because I had been out all season anyway. My contract was up. I, pr- I pretty much knew, you know, I wasn't going to be getting one. And I and then going off that game, I was like, yeah, like this is probably going to be the way I leave my my kind of career, which was which was hard to take at the time. Um, and I remember actually, I was just like um, Emma, my my fiance. She came in, she came into the toilet just to see how I was. And she was just first thing I said to her was like, "Well, I'm going to Antigua now." Because um, it was Damien. Damien was coming in. David was time. Damien was doing the row across yeah. the Atlantic. <laughs> That's all that was in my head. I was like, "Well, I'm off to Antigua." I was just like, "Whatever they say to me, I don't care. I'm just getting on a plane. I'm going to Antigua. I'm just getting out of here." Um, yeah. So that was like a bit, that was a nice distraction for me around that time because I did eventually end up going to Antigua and seeing Damien come in on the boat, which was which was really nice. And it was nearly, you know, it kind of I was just like, "Right, that's a good distraction. I'll go back. I'll kind of be." rejuvenate to try and get into a bit of rehab and stuff like that i was eventually told there was no contract there for me uh kind of what i was expecting anyway as much as you know you know you try and fight it a little bit but you're kind of like yeah it's it's probably the right decision out of them i played 14 games in two seasons i mean they're just you know that's that's not exactly stellar going so um and it's very hard for a team to keep you on when you have that return of play you know so um, and then after that, you know, kind of trying to get back from that injury, I just, I kind of lost enthusiasm and I was back training by the end of the season, but I just, I wasn't enjoying it at all. So I just having to go out every day and I was just like, right, I just, what I will do is I'll go for a nice long holiday. I'll take my time and I'll see where I'm at in maybe a couple of months time. And I remember during that time I was away on holidays and and I got a couple of kind of half offers, nothing spectacular, five months here or there. Um, not much coming in, to be honest, um, which is uh, which is what a lot of players face these days, unfortunately. Um, yeah. um, and then I was kind of, and then I got this kind of half offer and I was like, yeah, I could go for that. It was it was OK, like, you know, um, and I was just like, no, no, I'm not ready to go back yet. You know, obviously being too defired, the enthusiasm wasn't there. So I was like, I'll give it a bit more time. And I think I really knew in the back of my head, I was like, yeah, I, I don't really have much interest in kind of going back playing. There was no huge incident or nothing I could pinpoint or no massive injury or anything like that. It was just, I think, an accumulation of everything where I was just kind of said to myself, I think I'm done here, you know. So and even though I was only 31 at the time, body probably could have got through it. Like the shoulder was fine. The Achilles was all good. And I feel OK now. My, my body's good now, thankfully. But yeah, just at that time, I was just like, yeah, no, I think this is it. Um, and yeah, just pretty much, I didn't announce it or anything like that, but I just pretty much made the call myself. You've mentioned their injuries a few times. How mm. did you find dealing with injuries? Because you you have had your fair few over the years. Did you find it hard to kind of be away from the team for those extended periods of time? Because if I remember correctly, in Connacht, the, the injured players would, train themselves before the senior team would come in or have i no no you're right chap yeah yeah, yeah. Have it bang on um yeah i did i did find it hard i think it's hard for everyone because that that is very difficult to do you're training usually early in the morning i'm not sure if it's the same now but you usually have the rtp which was the return to play um so you train early in the morning maybe seven half seven you get your gym in before the the main squad are coming in um, you'd have your physio, but you'd still try and go to all the meetings and then just like, and then you'd do your rehab run or whatever. Maybe you'd do some off feet conditioning later in the afternoon. Um, and you'd try and watch maybe a bit of training if you could as well, just to kind of tre- keep on track of things. But, um, that's okay for a while. Um, what I found, especially that year, if you're injured for a long period of time, that can get pretty tedious. Um, and then you're just you're trying to go to meetings, but you really have no interest. Um, that's what I found as well, and that's pretty. That's actually a big regret of mine. I probably should have made more an effort that year to probably go to meetings and maybe contribute more, you know, to maybe the analysis side of things, or you know, um, helping the coaches out, or maybe looking at some video and helping you know some of the lads out and stuff like that. I probably should have done more of that, but just at the time, I just I was just so frustrated and fed up with things that I was just like I was just ducking out of meetings I wasn't going I was obviously I was doing my weights and I was doing my rehab and I was pretty diligent on my rehab as well I always was but just from the from the rugby side of things I was just like I was pretty fed up you know and I'd go out and watch training sometimes and then other times I wouldn't you know so um 
you do some some injuries are easier than others I think the long term ones are obviously very hard because you're away from the main squad for a long period of time and then obviously that I was getting I was you know I was getting two or three a season nearly and some of them would be big some of them would be small but if you continue to get that amount it it does it wears you down a little, little bit and you know it, it you know it can build resilience and it definitely did build resilience in, in other ways but um, it can be tough nonetheless in a weird sense, did that time on your own help prepare you for retirement? Like, you know, being away from the team in a, in a weird way. I don't, I, nothing prepares you for that moment when you're not a part, mm. a part of the squad anymore. Possibly, yeah. I've actually, I've never thought of it in that way, but it may have, yeah. Like, obviously, you're, one of the hard things about rugby is you're stepping away from that team environment and, you know, that closeness and, you know, you're going for coffees all the time and you're just always kind of in each other's pockets until you go home later in the afternoon or later in the evening and you may actually live with someone then and hang out and sometimes you're never away from them. Whereas maybe in that RTP group when you're probably, I was probably getting more used to kind of just being away from the group that maybe when I did step away, um, that it actually made it easier. That Yeah, you could you could be right in that way. Um one of the biggest things about stepping away as well was, um, like you hear a lot of stories now about uh, the players who find it very difficult. I think they're the stories that are highlighted a lot of the time. Players step away, very difficult, find it, find it, find it hard to be away from the team. Um, but it's, uh, and I just wonder is that the wrong way we're going about it because it can be, it can leave lads very anxious about giving up the game then. Um, whereas it's yeah. you know it's I must say and I'm a, I'm an advocate of this like I've actually I've actually enjoyed being away from it I've I think I've become healthier which is which is a funny thing <laughs> the fact that I'm not actually a professional athlete anymore I've actually become healthier than I'm not which is funny but um, I I think we just need to highlight the good stories as well from when people step away from the game because it, it, constantly highlighting the bad ones can can lead us very. Uh, uncertain and anxious about their giving up the game and then they possibly just you know stay in the game too long which which is something as well um you know and the longer you do stay in the game then the very the harder it is to to eventually get something and build something off the pitch you know so um i just i'd be a big advocate of just sharing the good stories as well i agree completely like i've been talking to a few players who have retired and who are even are playing in Ireland and they're like there's so much support in Ireland that it shouldn't be something to be fearful of it's a next step not the end of something exactly and and you're still part of that for me personally I didn't want to completely um leave the rugby environment that's why I was always so keen on coaching and that's why I really like being involved in Goegians now because you're still in that group, that tight knit group, and I'll be I'm a coach and they're the players, but you can still have the crack, you know, and, and that's actually a big thing as well. And I think that's what people miss a lot of the time. Um, but there, like you said, there, there's a huge amount of sport in Ireland. I think in every interview I've done since I've retired, I've mentioned Deirdre Lions and Rugby Players Ireland, and you can see a lot more fellas now um, mentioning Rugby Players Ireland because they do give a huge amount of help to lads who are finishing. Um, and they're always encouraging lads to do something while they're playing rugby because the reality is you do have a lot of time. As much as it is becoming more like a nine-to-five job and there is a lot of analysis to be doing and stuff like that, there is still a lot of time that you could, um, you know, improve yourself in other ways, like, you know, go to college and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think I think they've been a huge help to lads, not only within the game right now, but also lads retiring and stepping away from it. We'll talk about you as the coach how have you found that step across the line? Uh, not too bad, actually. You know, um, it's a little bit strange because I still, you know, you still nearly think of yourself <laughs> as, as one of the players, you know, one of the lads and stuff like that and having the crack. But you also have to, uh, you know, you have to show that authority as well that, you know, if if they're not, you know, if you're not, they're not doing what they're told and stuff like that, you you know, you have to lay down the law. And there is, um, and I, that's why I always found with, you know, I, you know, that, that story of Dan I told earlier of how, you know, he's kind of mellow throughout and, and, you know, kind of changed probably a little bit throughout his, his professional career coaching. I always went into coaching thing. Oh, I'm going to be really calm, composed. Cause I was on the pitch for most of the time anyway, calm, composed, mellow. Do you know, if things don't go your way, you'll find a way about it, but in a nice, clear and concise way. 
and then on, I'm on the pitch and I'm there yelling and screaming and, and effing players out of it. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, Jesus, what, what's happened to me here? You know, <laughs> and it's just the, the heat of the moment and you just, you know, you lose all control of, of your, your manners and stuff like that, you know, so it's, um, it, um, but I, like, I really do enjoy, I, I enjoy just, just being out there and I, and in fairness, I, I do, I like the game as well. I like looking at rugby stuff and I like studying what teams are doing. Um, you know, so as much as you can try and implement that and, and just, you know, hopefully I'd, I'd like to see it progress along in that, but you, you never know what you can do as much as I always say, as much as playing is competitive and it's very hard to get a contract now coaching is even more competitive because there's fewer jobs you know and is from what i've seen um what we were all learned throughout the webinar as and the seminars over the past few months is there's a huge amount of talented coaches out there you know all kind of vying for very few jobs focusing on Galwegians and what are your aspirations for them as a club i know like promotion and continuous promotion or Mm. is there more kind of creating more of a bedrock of a team that can grow for years it is that I think that's that's the main thing. Um, again, Galway is it's a strange place when it comes to sport. A lot of time and, and rugby, uh, you have obviously you have Connacht with a main professional team, but again, you know our, the fan base wouldn't be as big as a, as an Ulster, Leinster, and Munster. Um, when you look at the AIL, you have countless teams in Dublin, Cork, Limerick. But you only have two teams in Galway, and unfortunately, two teams are in two B, which is the fourth division of the AIL. And you're just wondering, and I know there's that competition between hurling and football and soccer and stuff like that. But you just wonder how you know there isn't more, how we're not more competitive, you know. So I think it is, it is building that bedrock um, within Galwegians anyway of seeing these young fellas come through, giving them quality coaching from a young age. Um, and like you know and having it all aligned throughout the age grades as well but also keeping that those lads in the club um, for as long as they can but it, enjoyment is such a huge factor of things now I always have to remind myself it's not professional these people have jobs outside of it they have lives they have college they have families you know it's not their lives don't revolve around sport or revolve around rugby like a professional player would you know, so you have to balance, you have to find that right balance with them and enjoying it is probably the biggest thing. But the only way you enjoy that is probably winning games or that's the main way you enjoy it. So it is finding that balance that you have to, you have to put in the work, but you also have to make it enjoyable for lads. Uh, and that's a tough thing. It's what I found. It's a really, really tough thing. And I'm probably still looking for the answer around that. But I think if we can build that bedrock of bringing lads, progressing lads through the club, but providing them with quality coaching, you know, I think that is, it's a good step along to make us really competitive again and ensure promotion and hopefully get us back to where we should be, I think, where we should definitely have at least one Galway team in 1A or 1B of the All-Ireland League. Definitely, like the talent's definitely there and I think this year there's going to be more chance for some of the academy players to play for the likes of Galwegians and Corinthians because there's going to be less travel, less money for A mm. fixtures. And yeah. that can only help Galwegians going forward, in the short term anyway. Yeah. Well, that, and that's it. And that's just about, you know, trying to get those lads in. And and it, it would be important to get those academy lads in. Um, and, you know, that's competition between those Corinthians. You know, that it, it'd be great if we could balance it out and stuff like that. But who knows that how that's going to go. But I also you don't you don't want to rely on these academy lads every single year because there is such a turnover within the academy that you really want to build that you you said bedrock earlier you know you want to build that core group of players that have hopefully come up through the club or you know have come into the club at an early stage and 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 been there for years that when other lads come in they'll see them they'll see the culture that they've developed and and stuff like that and hopefully the vision that we as coaches and those as players have all kind of bought into, um, and then hopefully that you know they'll fit seamlessly in. But I think that's the big. I don't think you want to be relying on those academy lads year in year out. Yes, they're great to get and they're all quality players, but it's the core group of players that really make the club. It's what I found from AIL anyway. How are Galwegians gonna get back playing after COVID? Has the roadmap for the AIL been laid out? 
There is, yeah, no, there is definitely, there's, a, there's guidelines in place now. Um, the first thing we had to do was meet all the safety standards and come up with a plan. So you have to have a club safety officer, you have to have a compliance safety officer. So the whole lot of, a lot of stuff put into it. Um, thankfully, I didn't have to worry about all that. I'm just inside the club. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. So, but, um, what it is looking like. So we're, we're actually hopefully going back training. What day is it today? It's Tuesday, isn't it? We're hopefully going back training this day next week. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. And, and what we're looking on, um, structuring our preseason will be probably two weeks on, two weeks off because we're just for these two weeks. It'll be, it's non, it's non contact, but you can only have 15 players on half a pitch. So this is where the difficult thing comes in because you don't know how many players are going to turn up training. That if 20 players turn up training uh, one in the evenings or next Tuesday or Thursday or whatever it may be, you're going to have to split them 10 and 10. On One will stay in one half to pitch, one will stay in the other half to pitch and they cannot interact at all. And then one coach, will, one coach will have to go with one group and one coach with the other. So you cannot train in a kind of a big group now until maybe the next guidelines are met and stuff like that. So it's going to be really difficult in judging it. And I think there's probably going to have to be a lot of adjusting on the go. The players that do come have to come ready to train. They can't shower there. They can't use any facilities. They have to sign a form so we can contact trace. And then they're straight back in the car after training. So yeah, I, I foresee it going to be difficult. And that's why we're doing these two weeks pretty much as a trial. Then we'll have two weeks off. We'll see how that go. And hopefully, you know, there'll be restrictions kind of lifted again from there. But you realize like it's it's kind of all up in the air. Like it's so uncertain. Like everything has been for the past few months, uh, and then season wise, uh, what it is looking like is possibly a kind of provincial tournament to cut down on the travel, maybe up till Christmas, um, and then after that, maybe a shortened AIL, uh, and that's all going to plan. But again, that has not been confirmed, so uh, that could change again. But yeah, it's all very uncertain. That's mad. Like and. At least professional teams have like teams of people to kind of figure all this stuff out for them. You're like all volunteers. That's it, yeah. Trying to sort this out on the fly. Mm. It's tough going. Yeah, it is. It is tough going. And you do rely on the goodwill and, and the the work of a lot of volunteers, you know, who are just in the club doing it off their own back, you know. So with Galwegians as well, we're not exactly, like we don't exactly have the best facilities set you know, that we can put one group in one place and another group in a totally different place, you know. So there will be a whole lot of logistics around it that we're going to have to figure out. But I'm sure we're not the only club in that situation. But we'll see. I think the first two weeks now are going to be interesting to see how it goes. Purely from a coach and from my point of view on, on how we do adjust it if we have, say, 20 plus numbers and how do we break that up and how do we make sure we get a quality training session in. Um, yeah, well, I think it could be a lot. I could be, it could be stop start. I'd say that sand pit is mighty. I've spent <laughs> many a day up there. Oh Jesus, I don't know. Not if you <laughs> fall on it and your knees graze and oh Lord, yeah. No, I've one last thing to ask you because I had not this idea and I put it up on social media a couple of, last week or the week before of doing the YouTube shows of the Connacht teams in the IL. And would you be a fan of that as a coach of say? the Connacht teams having their own YouTube half hour of this is what they did in the AL this week or would you be kind of afraid because other teams aren't doing it that you're just showing them what you're doing I know I don't think so I think that's the uh, I think that's the thing about coaching like we can get we can get videos of some teams every now and again but you know it's it's kind of like professional rugby like you can see a team a hundred times over but if you actually you have to stop them at the end of the day and i think it's the same for for ail but i don't know i think it's a good idea i think the more we can promote the ail and i've really only become a, an advocate of this since i've kind of been back in coaching but i think it's such a great competition and the more we can promote it the better and the more we can get academy players in playing with teams and the more we can um highlight the good things and the lads down in Limerick do a good podcast as well I forget the name of it off the top of my head uh, about the energy AIL where they talk about it every week but it's just great what they're doing and you kind of you look at what New Zealand are doing at the minute and Ardy Savea playing for his club and Dan Carter playing for his club and you wonder should we be making better use of the AIL when players can't get game time um, and I just think it's class what they do with that yeah, they just have this ability to kind of just drop back. I think the shorter season in the Southern Hemisphere helps mm. with that as well because they need that game time. Yeah, yeah. It's a f- big fix, and I think there's some big 
questions need to be answered going forward for the amount of t- games professional players play and can more happen at the IL to kind of promote because if the grassroots isn't there there's going to be no professional game mm, yeah exactly um, and it is it, it is a difficult one but I think the exposure that if you're even exposing club players and now I know you're if you're talking about a professional player coming down maybe 1A or 1B is probably where they would go uh, any lower than that and you just probably think it's it's probably unfair that a professional player is in those leagues but I think it's crucial that you like even getting these lads these bigger names back into clubs and maybe generating bigger crowds because obviously they, we all suffer with, with poor crowds coming to AIL matches and stuff like that but it's it's just such a it's a fantastic competition and I just see it I see it every week and the volunteers in, in, in the club and stuff like that the more we can get in and you, like you're talking about if you don't have those those clubs then there's no grassroots rugby and there's no professional game you know so it's hugely important Andrew I'm going to let you get back to your evening thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure talking to you yeah you too and it's uh, great to talk about something that more than just the Pro 12 final <laughs> and have a bit, a bit of a chat about the state of rugby as well. Yeah, no, I think it's good. And like when you talk, like you could talk about the state of rugby all day. I mean, it was even that I see yesterday about, um, I think Eddie Jones, they want to go down to five subs or five or six subs. And, you know, it's just the game, like we talked about earlier, the game is constantly evolving. So there's always kind of something to talk about within within the sport, you know, and I think it's, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's fantastic, you know, and I you know it's it's great that to kind of try and stay involved in this as much as I can. That's brilliant. Uh, it's great to see. I, I like seeing good rugby knowledge kept in the game, mm. and you have a wealth of it built up over the years. Yeah, well, I hope so. I had, I had, some, <laughs> I had some decent coaches, you know. So, um, and even like I, I met Mull there a couple of weeks ago. I'm trying to pick his brain about what Pat's doing and what Flaps is doing you know, up over in Bristol at the minute because. I don't know they're they're on a serious upward trajectory as well, you know, and they're actually really nice to watch. They they really are. Yeah. I, I think they have a great backer, but I think Pat still wants to keep things steady. Mm. As the, as I think he's not going to overreach. No, well, I don't like. I think Saracens gave them all a pretty valuable lesson there, anyway. So I don't think <laughs> I don't think any of them are going to overreach. But they're still like they're still going to have an insane backline next year, which you know. Pietau, Red Radra. I mean, like you put, give those two lads the ball; they're just quality players. Yeah, it's going to be hard to beat them going forward. Yeah, I, I'm look forward to watching them when they eventually get back as well. Yeah. Well, Andrew, good luck. Have a good evening, and it really was great to chat to you. Yeah, you too, Park. Cheers, man. Bye now. All the best. Bye bye. Thanks, Andrew, for coming on. It really was great to chat to you. And don't forget, everyone, to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. And this podcast is literally everywhere on all those podcasting apps from apple Podcasts to Acast, from spotify to soundcloud you name it it's there so don't forget to hit that subscribe button just send me a message if there's anyone else you would like me to chat to i'll be back again next week so until then stay safe mm-hmm.